of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 11th of July, 2022. The time is 7.03 a.m. And you're listening to your host, Tani al live from the breakfast studios of... Uh, 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 breakfast uh, studios in Voice of Islam in South London. Uh, the topics that we shall be talking about today, two topics, um, as is the norm here. Um, the first is about um, uh, the, uh, the the discrimination that uh, uh, that a, a lot of us experience. The um, um, uh, in terms of religious persecution and. We shall talk to a few guests um, around that as well. And then we shall uh, move on to uh, the global conflict, the um, the issues that we're seeing in terms of geopolitics at the moment and the in- injustices that, uh, that it carries with it and who's responsible for that and what's the solution for that. So those are the two topics um, uh, for today. Please do join us uh, in those discussions by calling us at 020-868-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we shall now talk about, start uh, off with, as we always do, with the uh, news that um, that are appearing in the head- newspaper headlines, rather in the newspapers today. So uh, the increasing number of candidates entering the race to become the next prime minister leads most of the papers today. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is throwing her hat into the ring to become the next prime minister, the Daily Telegraph has revealed. Writing in the paper, she says she will cut tax from day one, reverse the, na- the rise in national insurance and overall business rates. Priti Patel is likely to join the leadership race on Monday alongside the Foreign Secretary. The Times has reported the Home Secretary will make a final decision after taking soundings from Eurosceptic MPs as supporters of Boris Johnson are deliberating whether to back Mistrust or Miss Patel as they look for a candidate who can beat Rishi Sunak, the paper says. The leadership race to replace Boris Johnson is Sunak versus one of the rest, the I declares. It says the former Chancellor is the favourite to win, but right-wing Tory MPs are trying to block him. The Daily Mail says Mr Sunak was forced to deny links to the ex-number 10 advisor Dominic Cummings on Sunday evening. 
The former Justice team insisted that he had not spoken to Mr. Cummings since he left Downing Street in 2020, the paper reports. It also features a picture of the Duchess of Cambridge with his son, Prince George, watching Wimbledon during Sunday's hot weather. Senior Tory party figures are planning to rapidly thin out the field of candidates hoping hoping to become Prime Minister. The Financial Times reports this, this comes as rancor rises between rival camps, according to the paper. Also leading with the continuing battle of leadership, the Metro says Conservative MPs are expected to meet on Monday to decide the rules of the contest. Big hitter Michael Gove has backed the former Equalities Minister, Kemi Bednoch, for for the leader, the paper notes. Meanwhile, Chancellor Nadeem Sohavi has hit back at allegations over his taxes and finances, according to the Daily Express. The claims were inaccurate and unfair, according to the paper. The the Express, like many papers, also features Novak Djokovic's win at Wimbledon, making it his 21st Grand Slam victory. The Guardian leads with an investigation revealing how Uber flouted laws, duped police and lobbied governments. Some 124,000 files were leaked to the paper. It also notes that Conservative leader hopefuls were were due for a bruising week scrambling for supporters as the candidates are likely to be reduced to two in about a week. Ambulances in worst ever crisis, declares the Daily Mirror. The paper says ambulance crews are getting stuck outside of emergency departments for up to 27 hours before they can transfer patients to hospital. It quotes a union boss saying the crisis must be costing lives. And finally, the Daily Star says uh, the temperature is expected to reach 33 degrees centigrade on Monday today. People will be tempted to uh, to skive off work. The paper says it could be hotter than Hawaii and it is due to be 41 degrees centigrade by the weekend. So those are the headlines um, in the newspapers today. We shall now take a quick break and when we come back, we will continue our discussion on some of these headlines which um, the papers are talking about and at around 7.30 a.m. we shall start our first topic which is about religious persecution. The number to call to join the discussion is 0208-687-7878. Please tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. of Islam Radio.
revolutionary change was brought in the Arabian Peninsula by the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. He established a fair society, respect for women, and created brotherhood amongst the various tribes in his very lifetime. He promoted education in numerous ways, changing the entire landscape of Arabian society. People who were previously looked down upon soon became leaders in all aspects of human life. The Holy Quran commanded Muslims to spread throughout the world and experience the vastness of God's creation. Within a few hundred years, a relatively short span of time, Muslims became the educators of the world. They became pioneers in medicine, physics, history, geology, and civil and military administration. During the centuries of European history, defined as medieval, the most advanced civilization in the world was undoubtedly Islam. In a time spanning close to a thousand years, an era known as Islam's golden age. The holy founder of Islam, peace be upon him, placed great emphasis on learning. His specific instruction was to seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave. It is the quest for knowledge which opens the doors of progress, where Muslim minds seek not only to prove their own genius, but to implement it for the service of their creator. Islam's rapid spread during the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and under the leadership of the rightly guided Khulafa, precipitated what is commonly referred to as the Golden Age of Islam, a period which ushered in immense contributions to philosophy, science, engineering and governance. The development of modern medicine, astronomy and mathematics, the refinement of algebra and trigonometry and the use of optics in a physical manner are all legacies from the Islamic era. Muslim scientists brought both knowledge and application into inventions which are still pertinent to modern life today. Small tools ranging from scissors all the way up to complex water-powered pumping machines and standardised weighing scales were all invented by Muslim scientists. Indeed, their legacy lives on, but it's not just through the machines themselves, but also the words, many of which are derived from Arabic origin. Words include algebra, algorithm, alchemy and camera are all derived from root Arabic origin. In the 8th century, Khalid the goat herder noticed his excitable animals had eaten red berries, which led to coffee production and the early Arabic drink, al-Qahwa. This surfaced in Europe at the first Venice coffee house in 1645, making it the world's favorite hot beverage today. In the 8th century, Jabir ibn Khayyan devised and perfected the distillation process using the alembic still, which is still used today. Muslims were producing rose water, essential oils, and pure alcohol for medical use. Today, distillation has given us products ranging from plastics all the way to petrol. Early 13th century, Al-Jazari was the first person to use a crank, which transmits rotary motion into linear motion. His machines were able to raise huge amounts of water without anyone lifting a finger. Muslims also pioneered use of alternative energy through windmills and the construction of dams and water reservoirs. The invincible designs of 12th century castles of Syria and Jerusalem were imitated in Western lands with key features like round towers, arrow slits, barbicans and battlements. Muslim architecture techniques of the 8th and 10th century such as rib vaulting, the pointed and horseshoe arch were the main inspiration on which Gothic architecture was based. These techniques enabled European architects to overcome problems in Romanesque vaulting 
and are prevalent in surviving Gothic architecture all across Europe today. More than a thousand years ago, in a darkened room known as Gamara in Arabic, Ibn al-Khaytam observed light coming through a small hole in the window shutters, producing an upside-down image on the opposite wall. This early pinhole camera has led to the camera we know today. In the 13th century, Ibn al-Khaldum traced the rise and fall of human societies in the science of civilization, recording it all in his famous book, Al-Muqadimah, or Introduction to a History of the World, which forms the very basis of sociology and economic theory today. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, he who issues forth in search of knowledge is busy in the cause of Allah till he returns from his quest. In this hadith, travelers emphasized in relation to the seeking of knowledge, and the emphasis on movement intertwined with knowledge refers to the pilgrimage to Mecca. This emphasis on movement alongside knowledge seeking became a dominant cultural aspect of medieval Islam. Perhaps one of the most famous explorers of all time, Ibn Battuta, traveled over 75,000 miles in 29 years' time through over 40 modern countries, compiling one of the best eyewitness accounts of the customs and practices of the medieval world. Muslims were also the first people to commonly hold the idea of a round earth. In the 11th century, Al-Idrisi was commissioned by the Norman king of Sicily to make a map. He produced an atlas of 70 maps called the Book of Roger, showing the earth was round. Al-Idrisi also made a globe out of silver to further stress the point. Maths, known as the language of nature, has been an integral part of Islamic science, as well as developing existing Greek concepts like trigonometry and giving us the numerals we use today. In the 8th century, Al-Khwarizmi introduced the beginnings of algebra and it was developed into a form we still use today by many Muslims who followed him. Second World War problem solvers were carrying on the code-breaking tradition first written about by polymath Al-Gindi from Baghdad when he described frequency analysis and laid the foundation of cryptology. Cutting-edge surgeon Al-Zahrawi introduced over 200 surgical tools that revolutionised medical science more than 1,000 years ago. These tools look identical to modern-day 21st century tools used in various types of surgery. It was the gravitational pull of Khilafat that precipitated the rapid progress of Islam during its golden era. Once Khilafat on the precept of prophethood ended, the dominance of Islam soon began to fade. Today, the renaissance of Islam continues in the form of Khilafat in Ahmadiyyat, instituted after the demise of the promised Messiah, alayhi salam. As with the holy founder of the community, the Khulafa over the past 100 years have written numerous books embodying a massive amount of religious information. Under the divinely inspired leadership of Khilafat, therefore, the gravitational pull of unity is restored and the golden era of Islam is once more within sight.
أشهد أن لا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. His Holiness, Hazret Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the present head of the community, continues in his effort to unite people from all faiths and cultures by promoting interfaith dialogue and religious freedom. He has traveled extensively to spread the message of peace and to remind everyone to respect the rights of other human beings. During these tours, His Holiness has met world leaders from the Far East to Europe, from North America to Africa, discussing the economic, social and political problems facing the world today and how to create peace and justice in the world. He has also met religious and community leaders in order to share common values and core ideals universal to all religions and cultures with a view to improving the moral state of mankind and creating an atmosphere of love and affection. From young to old, he compassionately listens to the ordinary man, regardless of race, color or religion. He has personally initiated social projects and schemes to alleviate poverty and human suffering. His concern is not just about the well-being and moral state of the members of the Ahmadiyya community, but of the great human suffering of mankind at large. The Ahmadiyya community knows only that Islam, which is the Islam of love and affection, offers a real message of peace and security. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. We're talking about the headlines appearing in the newspapers today. Um, the story that I'd like to go um, slightly deeper into is um, uh, carried in The Guardian today, and it is about uh, Uber breaking laws, duping police, and secretly lobbying governments. Uh, so a leaked trove of confidential files uh, has revealed the inside story of how the tech giant Uber flouted laws um, and exploited violence against drivers and secretly lobbied governments during its aggressive global expansion, according to The Guardian. More than 124,000 documents were leaked to The Guardian, known as the Uber files, and they lay bare the, ethnic, the ethically questionable practices that fueled the company's transformation into one of Silicon Valley's most famous exports. The leak spans a five-year period when Uber was run by its co-founder, Travis Kalanick, 
who tried to force the cab hailing service into cities around the world, even if that meant breaching laws and taxi regulations. During the freest global backlash, the data shows how Uber tried to shore up support by discreetly counting prime ministers, um, or rather quoting prime ministers, presidents, billionaires, oligarchs and media barons. Leaked messages suggest Uber executives were at the same time under no illusions about the company, company's law-breaking, with one executive joking they had become pirates and another conceding, we are just illegal. The cash of files, which spans 2013 to 2017, includes more than 83,000 emails, iMessages and WhatsApp messages, including often frank and unvarnished communications between Kalanick and his top team of executives. In one exchange, Kalanick dismissed concerns from other executives that sending Uber drivers to a protest in France put them at risk of violence from angry opponents in the taxi industry. I think it's worth it, he shot back. Violence guarantees success. In a statement, Kalanick's spokesperson said he never suggested that Uber should take advantage of violence at the expense of driver safety and any suggestion he was involved in such acti- activity would be completely false. The league also contains texts between Kalanick and, em- and Emmanuel Macron who secretly helped the company in France when he was economy minister allowing Uber frequent and direct access to him and his staff. Macron, the French president, appears to have gone to extraordinary lengths to help Uber, even telling the company he had brokered a secret deal with its opponents in the French cabinet. Privately, Uber executives expressed barely disguised disdain for other elected officials who were less receptive to the company's business model. After the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who was mayor of Hamburg at the time, pushed back against Uber loyalists and insisted on paying drivers a minimum wage, an executive told colleagues he was a real comedian. When the then US Vice President Joe Biden, supporter of Uber at the time, was late to a meeting with the company at the World Economic Forum at Davos, Kalanick texted a colleague, I've had my people let him know that every minute late he is is one less minute he will have with me. After meeting Kalanick, Biden appears to have amended his prepared speech at Davos to refer to a CEO whose company would give millions of workers freedom to work as many hours as they wish, manage their own lives as they wish. The Guardian led a global investigation into the leak Uber files, sharing the data with media organizations around the world via the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the the ICIJ. More than 180 journalists at 40 media outlets, including Le Monde, Washington Post and the BBC, will in the coming days publish a series of investigative reports about the tech giant. In a statement responding to the leak, Uber admitted to mistakes and missteps, but said it had been transformed since 2017 under the leadership of its current chief executive, Dara Shahi. We have not and will not make excuses for past behavior that is clearly not in line with our present values, it said. Instead, we ask the public to judge us by what we have done over the last five years and what we will do in the years to come. Kalanick's spokesperson said Uber's expansion initiatives were led by over 100 leaders in dozens of countries around the world and at all times under the direct oversight 
and with the full approval of Uber's robust legal policy and compliance groups. The leaked documents pull back the curtains on the methods Uber used to lay the foundations for its empire. One of the world's largest work platforms, Uber is now a $43 billion company, making approximately 19 million journeys a day. The files cover Uber's operations across 40 countries during a period in which the company became a global behemoth, bulldozing its cab-hailing service into many of the cities in which it still operates today. From Moscow to Johannesburg, bankrolled with unprecedented venture capital funding, Uber heavily subsidized journeys, seducing drivers and passengers onto the app with incentives and pricing models that would not be sustainable. Uber undercut established taxi and cab markets and put pressure on governments to rewrite laws to help pave the way for an app-based gig economy model of work that has since proliferated across the world. In a bid to quell the fierce backlash against the company and win changes to taxi and labor laws, Uber planned to spend an extraordinary £90 million in 2016 on lobbying and public relations, one document suggests. Its strategy often involved going over the heads of city mayors and transport authorities and straight to the seat of power. In addition to meeting Biden at Davos, Uber executives met face-to-face with Macron, the Irish Prime Minister, and Kenny, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, and George Osborne, the UK's Chancellor at the time. A note from the meeting portrayed Osborne as a strong advocate. In a statement, Osborne said it was the explicit policy of the government at the time to meet with global tech firms and persuade them to invest in Britain and create jobs here. While the Davos... um, sit down with Osborne was declared. The data reveals that six UK Tory cabinet ministers had meeting with Uber had meetings with Uber that were not disclosed. It is unclear if the meetings should have been declared, exposing confusions around how UK lobbies rules are applied. The documents indicate Uber was adept at finding unofficial routes to power, applying influence friends or intermediaries, or seeking out encounters with politicians at which aides and officials were not present. It enlisted the backing of powerful figures in places such as Russia, Italy, and Germany by offering them prized financial stakes in the startup and turning them into strategic investors. And in a bid to shape policy debates, it paid prominent academics hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce research that supported the company's claim about the benefits of its economic model. Despite a well-financed and dogged um, lobbying operation, Uber's efforts had mixed results. In some places, Uber succeeded in persuading governments to rewrite laws with lasting effects, but elsewhere the company found itself blocked by entrenched taxi industries, outgunned by local cab-hailing rivals or opposed by left-wing politicians who simply refused to budge. When faced with opposition, Uber sought to turn to its uh, it, Uber sought to turn it to its advantage, seek, uh, seizing upon it to fuel the narrative its technology was disrupting antiquated transport systems and urging governments to reform their laws. So that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, was um, a little bit of detail around the Uber story, which is um, 
have been um, carried by uh, many papers, including The Guardian uh, this morning. And I was just um, talking about what's uh, mentioned in The Guardian today. Um, we shall now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will start discussing our first topic, which is about religious persecution. Do stay tuned. of Islam radio. Islam is a benefactor of other religions. Islam is such a pure religion that it does not permit the use of abusive language against any religious founder. The followers of other religions let out a stream of invective at the drop of a hat. Just look at how the Christians use foul language against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. If he had been alive today, even in view of his worldly status, they would not have had the courage to say a word against him. In fact, they would have treated the Holy Prophet with a thousand times more reverence. Such people would not dare curse or insult the Emir of Kabul or the Sultan of Rome who were humble followers of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But when the name of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is mentioned, they revile him with a thousand obscenities. Islam is a benefactor for other religions because it vindicated every prophet and divine scripture of the past. But despite this, Islam is abused. The essence of Islam, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah, there is none worthy of worship except Allah, is to be found in no other religion. Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, the Promised Messiah and Mahdi, alayhi salam. Mulfuzat, Volume 1, Page 7. Allah 
أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to your host Daniel Zia, and we are about to uh, embark on a discussion on the first topic of the day, which is about religious persecution. So on the 5th and 6th of July uh, this year, the UK government will host um, uh, or has uh, hosting a, has been hosting a human rights conference to urge increased global action on freedom of religion or belief for all. This provided a great opportunity to fight abuse and religious persecution. Many people, regardless of their faith, should not be should not have been targeted for abuse or persecution. Yet there is clear evidence that persecution still happens, which can affect the, the daily lives of various communities. In this segment, we will look at exploring what religious persecution is and what impact it has. So what is religious persecution? Religious persecution is the mistreatment of an individual or group of individuals as a reaction to their religious beliefs. In a news article by Religious News, um, it has reported several different kinds of religious persecutions in recent news. For example, increasing persecutions of um, uh, of Christians in parts of Nigeria, reports of concentration camps in China targeting Uyghur Muslims, or Taliban enforcing strict guidelines from, for Muslim women or Rohingya Muslims um, uh, um, having discri- facing discrimination in Myanmar. Furthermore, recent news articles have also reported a rising number of unrest against Muslims in India. And of course, there has been the long-standing issue of minorities in Pakistan being mistreated due to their religion or belief. The article um, that I just referred to further reports on Russia targeting Orthodox churches in Ukraine or places of worship in general. Countries like Afghanistan and Iran are, are ambushing minorities and focusing on those Muslims who go against their dictatorships and dictatorial rules. In the 2020 annual report of U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, several countries uh, of concerns were noted due to their religious persecution occurring in those countries. To name a few, the report mentions Burma, Pakistan, India, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, Vietnam, China, as countries of concern. Speaking on the persecution of Ahmadi Muslims, it states Ahmadi Muslims with their faith essentially criminalized continue to face severe persecution from authorities as well as societal harassment due to their beliefs with both the authorities and mobs targeting their houses of worship. Even recently, in May this year, a man in his 30s was murdered only due to his faith. So what should be the uh, the best response um, to religious persecution and how um, how can we act how can um, somebody who's experiencing persecution react in the best uh, possible manner 
So it is always important to highlight that struggles faced by people who are denied the basic human right of freedom of religion and uh, belief. And as I mentioned earlier, on the sixth uh, and on the fifth and sixth of July, the UK government hosted a global summit to debate about the impact of religious persecution. This was the third occasion where delegates were able to meet in union as pandemic restrictions were eased. There are numerous documentation uh, of of high levels of uh, injustice by societal factors and governments. The ultimate purpose of these get-togethers um, is so that the the poor surroundings um, in the world take a turn for the better. Countries around the world are breaking free from the pandemic, rights of nations, civil society and religious groups, and by combining forces to help with the persecution that is affecting all spheres across the globe. So my question to anyone listening uh, today would be, uh, have you faced any sort of religious persecution and what has your experience been if you faced any sort of persecution and um, you'd like to talk about it, please do uh, call us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Let me play now a short clip um, from the head of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mr. Masoor Ahmad, um, as he presided over virtual uh, mulakats or meetings with Wakfeno uh, and, um, uh, and and other children from the USA, where he answered several questions during a Q&A. One question included, what role can Ahmadis play in improving the condition of those who are persecuted? Let's listen in. Uh, what role Wakfino can play to help in improving the conditions of uh, Ahmadiyyas living in oppressive countries such as Pakistan? So see, you can only pray for these people. Pray for Muslim Ummah that they take sense and uh, try to accept the reformer of the age the person who was sent by Allah Ta'ala to revive the teachings of Islam and guide them on the right path. So this is the only thing. Otherwise, uh, these countries where there is too much opposition, you cannot do anything unless you have some power. And at present, we don't have that power. This is why the Hadith says, if you have power, you stop brutality, cruelty with your hand. If not that much power, then at least stop by saying to the people and ask them to take sense. Right? And if that is not possible, then pray for them. This is what the Hadith says of the Holy Prophet So we can only pray for them. Okay? <laughs> that is the only solution. If you are praying fervently for them, then inshallah one day you will see the result. I hope inshallah we shall change the world. Inshallah. And this is why Muslim 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 has said that Allah Ta'ala has told me 
that uh, he will make the change in the world through prayers. So this is the only weapon in our hand which we should use properly. And also reflect on this and see how far you are trying to close yourself to Allah Ta'ala. How far you are absorbed in offering your prayers while praying, you are fervently praying to Allah Ta'ala. So that Allah Ta'ala listens to your prayers. Right? So now we should also first see and check our own inside. What we have, what we are saying is the same. What we want, what we preach, what we desire. If our own practices are not the same, then our prayers cannot be accepted as we desire. So reflect upon this. Right? So that was uh, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, uh, answering a question about what role can Ahmadis play in improving the condition of those uh, persecuted. Um, let me now go straight to our first guest uh, on the show today. Uh, he, um, The guest is Kiri Kanhwende, who is the press and public affairs team leader at CSW. Assalamu alaikum, peace with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm sorry, Kiri. I, 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 firstly, I couldn't pronounce your name right, and then I mentioned uh, you as a he, so my my, my, my uh, uh, profuse apologies for that. So, so uh, did I pronounce your name right? Uh, you did, yes. Thank you. Uh, okay, <laughs> excellent. So my, my apologies for that. Right. Um, please tell our listeners a little more about CSW. Right, so CSW is an advocacy organization. Um, we advocate for the right to freedom of religion or belief worldwide for mm. everyone, everywhere. And we have a consultative status at the United Nations, which means that we, it's one of the many arenas in which we advocate, but it means that we can bring the voices of those who are suffering violations of this human right right into the heart of power at the United Nations to speak directly to their own countries, but also to other countries to encourage action and change. Right. So, Kiri, if I can ask you, what change have you been able to bring about um, in the lives of those who are persecuted? Persecution seems to be increasing. Uh, the, the list of countries seems to be ever-growing. Yes, it's it's, it's a challenge. Um, freedom of religion or belief is one of the you know, as as many human rights is, is violated in many countries around the world. What we have seen, though, is we have advocated for people to be released from prison, people to be released from death row. Um, in the lives of individuals, we've seen changes. On the, on the wider scale, um, there are times when we have seen um, legislation stopped in its tracks. Um, but in many cases, to be honest with you, the struggle is ongoing, but I, I remain hopeful despite the um, the difficult situation because awareness of this human right um, is growing all the time and people are beginning to realize that to realize your right to freedom of religion or belief, you need to exercise your other rights, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. And so we are seeing that it is a really 
important right. Um, and so as awareness of this grows, um, demands for this to be respected also grow. So although it's an uphill struggle, I remain hopeful that we will see change around and the world. I, absolutely, and hopeful we must remain. But but if I can... Uh, if I can be slightly challenging to you, this yes. is, uh, so early in the morning, I I, I realize that. Uh, uh, so if I if I can ask you, what change, for example, have you been able to bring to um, to the lives of Rohingya Muslims um, in Myanmar, or maybe um, uh, Uyghur Muslims in China, or or, or even the, the Muslims in India? True. Those are three of perhaps the most serious situations in the world today. And we've been speaking out on those for, in particular, the Rohingya for about 20 years now, even mm. before it became a big issue on the world stage. Um, as I said, on, a, on, the, on the larger scale, on the systemic scale, we have been unable to stop the abuses from going on. As we know, in China, in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, um, a range of very, the most grave human rights violations are happening against Uyghur Muslims. Um, The Rohingyas still face um, not being recognized in their own country and are effectively stateless. Um, So on the wider scale, I would say that while the bigger issue has not changed, perhaps, on an individual scale, um, we have been able to help certain individuals, certain families to speak up. We work quite closely, for instance, with the family Can you give me some examples of that, Guri? Oh yes, we speak. We, we we work with the family of Ziba Murat, for instance, who mm. is a Uyghur activist. Um, right. And after she was speaking, we were able to work with her to bring her to the United Nations to speak about her case, mm. about her mother, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, who has been missing um, for a number of years, swept up as many Uyghurs have been. And when she was able to do that, she had not known for many years where her mother even was. The, mm. the Chinese state had not admitted that they had even taken her. But after she was doing her advocacy at the UN, assisted by us, they, the, the Chinese state was forced to um, admit that they had actually taken her mother. And while she is not free for the family to know that she, where she is in the system is very, very helpful because it is the next step to, to getting her free. A lot of what we do in advocacy is in the in-between stages. Although we haven't seen the final, uh, I want to say the final solution, the final breakthrough, I would say, on an individual level, we have seen small changes that are on the road to the bigger breakthrough. Because once we can find out exactly where people like Dr. Gulshan Abbas are and to secure her freedom, Mm. it also sets the stage to free others like her. Sure. So please tell us more about how you were able to do that, actually. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in finding out, is it, um, uh, is it by working with the, uh, closely with the government of, in China or was it through the Office of the United Nations? How were you actually able to make, make a difference in that, in that example? Well, it's the advocacy that we do at the United Nations, for instance, is we hold meetings with states, for instance. Mm. We raise cases where we can as an NGO on the floor. Um, there are different, it's a very big bureaucratic institution and there are moments sure in their human rights council where we do most of our activity Hmm. where ngos are permitted to speak and where possible we have given over that floor to people like ziba to speak for themselves to address um states directly and when 
um, state delegations hear the testimonies of people who are actually going through it, it does change minds and it does change hearts. It adds pressure because then later in private meetings, states will ask, like the Chinese delegation, you know, what is happening? Where is this? And it provokes um, this pressure, which can lead to revelations like that. In Cuba, for instance, um, we had a situation where there's a pastor, uh, a Christian pastor who is in prison. He's still in prison. However, again, his family had no idea where he was. And after the case was raised at the United Nations, with our assistance, we did hear, um, we got confirmation not only of where he was, but his prison mm. sentence, which had been, they hadn't told even the, he'd been tried, but the family did not even know what the outcome of the prison uh, trial had been. And so they were able to get that information because United Nations Special Procedures, the human rights experts, actually asked a question directly of the Cuba delegation. And in a letter response to the United Nations, they admitted that Pastor Lorenzo Rosales Fayado was being held at this particular prison. He had been received a, an eight, a seven-year sentence. And all this information the family had never heard before. And they actually admitted in the letter that the family had not been told. So, again, although it's just one family, one case, as you know, for that family, it means the world. So it's long-term work, but on an individual basis, there is slow progress. One person at a time, I I get that. Do you you feel that you you get um, ample space in the media? Um, It's a challenge. I would say that freedom of religion and belief is, it's a tough one. I think sometimes the media think that religious people are just being dramatic or that religious people are only speaking up for themselves. But um, I think, um, so that does make it a challenge to get the media coverage of hmm. these issues. Also, some of these issues have been going on for a long time. You mentioned the Rohingya earlier. Hmm. You know, since the 1982 citizenship law was changed in Myanmar, they have effectively been stateless. Hmm. And I don't know if that there has been enough coverage of the long, the way that mm. the situation against the Rohingya was developing since the 80s, since mm. before then. Um, and when an issue is long running like that, sometimes the media is not interested because they want to talk about something that se- seems new or dramatic. But sometimes things, de- they devolve slowly into a terrible situation mm. over many years. And I think the media, because it's focused on sensational things, sometimes it's difficult to get that awareness, which is why I'm so glad that you and your team focus on these issues, even you know, outside of the big spectacles that you're focusing on the long-term issues. It's really important. So another long-term issue that, that I think is brewing now, uh, looking at the example of Rohingya Muslims, is uh, Muslims in Assam in India where they have been rendered stateless. And, um, you know, if history suggests anything, they they will probably, uh, at some stage, if things, God forbid, keep on going the way they are, take the Rohingya Muslim route. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's deeply, deeply worrying. And um, the under the Modi government, the space for civil society, the space for human rights, has been getting smaller and smaller as they pursue a Buddhist nationalist agenda. And right now, Muslims are on the sharp end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, We're very concerned. um, After the Citizenship Amendment Act, it does have eerie echoes of what happened in Burma. And the attacks against um, innocent Muslims up and down the country should be a cause for concern for everybody, particularly as India claims to be 
you know, the world's biggest democracy. Exactly, what is happening society. now? Mm. Yes, what is happening now to the Muslim community is it's appalling. It shouldn't happen anywhere, let alone a country that says it has it upholds democratic values and citizenship for all, including its minorities. Right. Let's um, uh, go over to the um, issues that um, uh, minorities, Christians, are facing in Nigeria. So tell us a little more about what you may have been able to do for them. Yes, so the situation in Nigeria, especially in the northern and central states, involves um, attacks by armed actors, um, non-state actors, so Mm -hmm. armed terrorist groups and vigilante groups attacking... I would say they are attacking Christians and other um, other communities who perhaps have traditional beliefs, who may not be um, Christian or Muslim, um, and they are attacking them with violence. We saw the recent attack uh, on a church in Owa State, which is alarming because that is the, this wave of attacks moving ever south. So one of the problems in Nigeria is the government's failure to just get to grips with an armed insurgency which is threatening not just the fabric of the country, but the nation. Something that also does not go reported as often is um, these armed actors attack everybody. They attack they attack Christians, certainly, but they also attack Muslims mm. that they feel do not agree with their, uh, with their beliefs. They attack um, people of other religious beliefs as well. Um, and they hold people for ransom. It's the kidnapping for ransom, which is tearing communities apart. There's also forced marriage, rape, um, a number of crimes. And recently the government has done a good thing in declaring this a terrorist threat. Once you declare it a terrorist threat, it mobilizes a lot of resources to deal with it. But we still need to see, uh, we know where these people are. It is known in the country where they hide. It is known who funds and supports them because they do have funding and support from different quarters. It just needs to be tackled because... um, uh, the displacement of people. We have hundreds of thousands of people internally displaced from their homes, um, an internal refugee crisis, if you, if you can call it that, um, as well as the violence, the killing, the death, and the forced marriage. You mentioned about media being interested in you know the next big thing or a, or a big story and, and and not interested in in stories like these, um, uh, and 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 yet we. We did see that uh, when um, uh, this, um, uh, I forget the name, uh, Asya Begum was uh, was released um, uh, by the Supreme Court of Pakistan, that, that um, uh, she was obviously a Christian and um, and she was um, uh, she was on the death roll there. But the Supreme Court released her and and she was able to leave the country and lives in safety today. That was actually a big story that uh, was carried in, in, in the West, and we saw that on BBC and splashed across many other papers as well. However, many of the other stories that we're talking about, so, you know, in, in if you look around, for example, uh, the uh, the problem of, uh, of persecution seems to be a lot more prevalent against the Muslims, if I, you know, if I can be direct about that. You, you look at China, you look at Myanmar, you look at India, you look at you know some other countries as well. Um, would you agree that there is inherent bias in the media? Um, that's a very good question. I think from a Western perspective, it could be that anti, 
um, Muslim Islamophobia. feelings, yeah. yes, do feed into the reluctance, perhaps, to to report on some mm. things. I do think that because we, we, I mean, we work on all groups and we see it affecting, to be honest, across across the range of of things. Because even, for instance, you mentioned the Nigeria situation. Although mm. it has been reported, there is a refusal to deal with it as a systemic issue and to look at it. For instance, as a as a as a trend, not just outsized attacks on this church or, you know, this mosque. Um, so I think there in the West there may be a uh, sort of Islamophobic element to it, but there is also the wider issue of just um, perhaps a lack of religious literacy um, in the West where things are more secular. I don't think they understand necessarily always what religion means to people, how important it is, how not being able to go to your place of worship. Because when we talk about religious persecution, that is a very particular crime. But religious freedom violations run the gamut from everyday discrimination mm. that you might be facing, mm. discrimination under the law, as we mentioned, the Citizenship Amendment Act in India or the Citizenship Act in, in, in Burma, which is affecting the Rohingya. It runs the gamut from discrimination under the law and all these things in educational settings all the way through to imprisonment and death. Mm. And I don't think the media fully understands what that means. Uh, for so many people around the world, belief and non-belief communities. Right, okay. We're coming up to the 8 o'clock news, and um, I'd like to really continue this discussion with you. So uh, if you don't mind staying with us on the line for um, uh, for another two, three minutes uh, while we uh, go to the news, and um, then I'd like to uh, you know come back to you and, and really uh, talk about what more can we all do to... Uh, uh, to help some of these people to stop persecution, to stop really um, to do something about this uh, this pandemic of injustice in the world, uh, mm-hmm. I would say. So if you don't mind um, staying on the line, I will come back to you right after the news break, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you very much, Kiri. Um, yes, so 8 o'clock news is next. And when we come back, we will continue this discussion with Kiri Kankwende, who, uh, who works uh, uh, in the press and public affairs team um, and is a team leader there um, at the CSW organization. Allah, Allah. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday the 11th of July 2022. The time is 8 or 2 a.m. And before we went into the break, we were talking to Kiri Kankwende, who is the press and public affairs team leader at CSW. And we were talking to her about persecution in general and persecution of people of various faiths and backgrounds around the world. So, um, Kiri, um, are you still with us? Uh, Kiri, can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. All right. Um, So... Before we enter the break, we were talking about um, uh, religious persecution, and you mentioned that there there's, there appears to be lack of understanding in the media 
that uh, what religious persecution actually means, what it means for somebody to not be able to to express their faith uh, or to be able to go to uh, their place of worship and and express their faith openly. Um, my question to you on that would be: uh, I, while I can un, un, I can understand that you know in the West there is a complete freedom. Um, uh, to practice your faith and and people may not understand how important um, uh, and faith has taken a backseat as well um, in, in the West in general so I can totally get the point you're making but the question that I would have is you know if 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 somebody is is killed for their religious for their religious belief and if hundreds of thousands of people like uh, people are killed whether that's um, in Myanmar or or anywhere else, uh, a life uh, lost is a life lost. Why would media not be interested in talking about those stories, and why do those stories die down so quickly and easily? What could be behind that? That's a good question. Um, I do notice that the deaths, sadly, do make it onto the agenda, but as you say, only briefly. Hmm. Um, it's hard for me to speculate. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, except that sometimes... Um, they don't see Would the you full agree, picture. Kiri, that there is that there is this there is pandemic of injustice in the world, and and let me build on that argument by saying that you know we talked about uh, leaders of um, uh, of of India. You talked about the Modi government there, uh, and yet you see the Modi government being celebrated and and Modi himself being feted across. Um, across the world, whether that's in um, you know in the G20 summit or um, in other, and because India is a is a big economy, and nobody seems to want to upset uh, you know their leadership, and and therefore this issue of persecution never really comes up in any of those bilateral discussions between uh, leaders of the powerful G7 states and the Indian leadership. Would you agree? Yes, I mean they sometimes uh, would um, might say that they they raise these things privately, but we have no way of proving that. Mm. I think part of it is that issues of uh, persecution or human rights violations in general tend to take a backseat to trade and other security or geopolitical concerns, um, and that's really where people pressure comes in to try and keep it on the agenda because, um, you know. <sighs> Modi is one good example of somebody who gets away with quite a lot mm. um, and manages to maintain his image on the world stage. And puncturing that image, is, I think, is part of the challenge in terms of um, reminding people that this is still ongoing. I mean, there, there seems to be, a, you know, this, this seems to be very closely linked to geopolitics as well. Um, as you said, as you suggested, some leaders would say that they would take uh, take up these issues with the Indian leadership privately, um, whereas uh, nobody seems to be taking this issue privately with China, and everybody seems to be taking this issue very publicly with with China, um, because you know China is characterized in the West today as the enemy, you know Russia and China. So, do you think geopolitics is also playing a role here? Oh, absolutely. Um, and even though, I mean, they do sometimes raise it publicly with China, but most of that is is, is individual policymakers or, 
or pressure groups because mm. governments themselves are really cautious about what they raise with China. So, yes, I think global politics is definitely part of it um, and the sense of the balance of power shifting um, over the years mm. as, you know, India and China are more powerful, um, just as an example, um, but also just the as other countries such as the US or the UK focus on their own concerns more, they are less likely to intervene in issues in other countries. Would you... It's, so I guess we're both agreeing that there is there is clearly a pandemic of, uh, of injustice around the world and injustice in terms of picking and choosing your... Um, uh, you know, whose case you want to fight and which which corner you want to hold. My question to you, Gary, would be, what makes you hopeful then? Oh, I'm hopeful because, as you describe, you know, this pandemic of injustice, we also see a movement for justice. So whether it is Hmm. Sudan, where people have been protesting Cuba, where people have taken to the streets, Sri Lanka, where we see right now, although that's not connected directly to religious freedom, you know, people are raiding the presidential palace and demanding their rights. What makes me hopeful is that on an individual basis, person to person, most people react to injustice and they don't like it. Um, And they have sympathy for others. And it's about building on that person by person, case by case. I mentioned, you know, um, a few individuals who, you know, what tends to happen is someone loses someone in their family, they become a, a spokesperson, even if they don't want to, a human rights activist. But as they gather more people to their cause, Um, and speak out, it puts it on the government agenda. Even Myanmar, where we have seen a military coup recently, we've also seen brave um, the people of Myanmar coming out against the military, people who are unarmed, facing a heavily armed military, calling for human rights, calling for um, justice for ethnic minorities, including, um, you know, for for the um, ethnic minorities within the country. So that's what gives me hope, is that on a person-by-person basis, people know this is wrong, and people speak up. And it's about adding enough, because at the end of the day, all these world leaders that make these decisions, they're also people. They are elected, and they're vulnerable to their electorate. If they seem unpopular, they don't like it. So the more noise we make from the bottom, it does reach the top, and that's what gives me hope. Right. Uh, And and finally... um when we look at um, uh, some of the other human rights issues, for example, uh, we look at uh, the issue of um, of access to clean drinking water in in Africa. Um, we see um, Save the Children advertising uh, quite aggressively on television. Have you uh, have you as a, as an organization considered that to create more awareness in the media and in in, in, in the public in general? As in to as partner into, with other... Uh, as in to just talk about, you know, this issue, for example, um, if somebody is not able to go to a mosque or, a, or, or go to his church in Nigeria or mm-hmm. the, what challenges people of different faiths face in various countries in terms of the persecution they're experiencing, perhaps talking about that in a, in a TV ad or something like that, um, is, is that on the agenda? Oh, well, um, if we get enough funding, we would love to do Uh, that. It's a case of more to do with resources rather than anything else. But certainly, um, you know, uh, we're we're reaching through the media and through televisions is 
and adverts and, and radio like this is all very important in terms of raising mm-hmm. awareness and just touching people's hearts. A lot of people you'd be surprised you'd be surprised that people don't know sometimes, but when they do know, yeah. as we saw in the pandemic um, during the lockdowns when people got concerned with issues of racial justice, for instance, mm. when people have the time to think about something, um, they react. So it's about claiming that time in a busy schedule when people are trying to get through with, with their daily lives. Right. Um, Kiri, thank you very, very much for joining us uh, uh, today. Thank you very much for answering all the challenging questions uh, right here uh, early in the morning. Really appreciate uh, all your input and Thank you so very much. It's been very insightful. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. So that was Kiri uh, Kankwenze, who is the Press and Public Affairs Team Leader at CSW. Let me now play um, another short clip. Um, this is also uh, from the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, Hazrat Mizam Ashur Ahmad, um, during one of the uh, Q&As. And uh, the question that was asked here was why the Pakistani Ahmadis are not allowed to fight in defense of their rights. Let's listen in. Right, I'm not able to play that um, for some reason, but we will come back to that and and, and try and play that um, as soon as uh, as we can. Right, so... um, Staying on with the uh, with the topic of religious persecution, then, what are your thoughts about persecution? Do you think people in general in West are aware of the persecution that many people face? Um, uh, would you agree with the suggestion that um, uh, because there is uh, freedom of speech and freedom of belief in the West, um, and also because faith in general, uh, you know, is is not a major issue? Uh, in the West, um, faith has taken a, a back seat here in the West, is is and and therefore people are just not aware of what challenges on a day to day basis people around the world face, so whether they are in uh, Christians of Nigeria or uh, Muslims in Rohingya. Do tell us what you think by calling us at zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. We shall now take a quick break, and when we come back, we will continue this discussion on religious persecution. The Holy Quran states, "Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth." Anur is that being through whose light a physically blind person sees and a person who has gone astray finds guidance. It is that being who is apparent and through whom all things are manifested. His being is apparent in himself and makes things evident for others as well. The true light is God, which can be perceived in everything by those with insight. However, one who is devoid of spiritual sight cannot see it. A believer is firm on the belief 
that the universe that can be observed, as well as the universe that cannot be observed, is created by God in order to give an understanding of this light. God sends His chosen people who spread the nur, which comes down from the heavens throughout the world. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, writes, That light of high degree that was bestowed on perfect man was not in angels, was not in the stars, was not in the moon, was not in the sun, was not in the oceans or the rivers, was not in rubies or emeralds, or sapphires or pearls. In short, it was not in any earthly or heavenly object. It was only in perfect man, whose highest and loftiest and most perfect example was our Lord and Master, the chief of the prophets, the chief of all living ones, Muhammad, the chosen one. Peace and blessings of Allah be on him. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, set the most excellent example and the highest standard of nur, which was established as a reflection of the light of God and which will continue till the day of judgment. The nur he received was conveyed to his companions and established excellent morals amongst them, so much so that he likened them to the stars. After the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, the reflection of God's light was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. This was due to complete subordination of his master. Not only did God fill the promised Messiah on whom be peace with nur that was sent down more than 1,400 years ago, he also granted him the station to spread this nur. The promised Messiah on whom be peace wrote that no one knew him and God compelled him out of his solitude and told him that he would bestow upon him honor and make him renowned all over the world. It is a way of God that when he adorns someone with nur, he manifests it to the world. After all, when the worldly light has a capacity to spread, how can the light of God stay hidden? نحمد الله المعين Azrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, 
flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Ahmadi have always practiced this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Ahmadiyya Association. Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movement that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars being fought in different parts of the world. He worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, It is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, that were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide 
to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Amadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, aside, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. And I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Amadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Amadis in this country, but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us. And that's very important because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen. And I thank you for that. The Amadean community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, to the richness of our community. And that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society and the important charitable causes that you support, not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show where we're talking about religious persecution. And before we venture into the break, we're trying to play a clip from the uh, fifth head, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, where he was asked a question about why are Pakistani Ahmadis not allowed to fight defensively? Let's try and play one more time and see if we can play his response. According to the promised Messiah, Ali jihad of this age is jihad of the pen, since Islam is attacked through the use of pen. If defensive fighting was granted to Muslims in earlier period of Islam, why are Ahmadis not allowed to fight defensively against the persecutions in Pakistan and other countries, since such persecutions are not through the use of pen. You see, the Prophet Islam has said that I have come to this world in this age to establish peace. And I have come on the footsteps of the Messiah of Moses. 
Did Jesus Christ ever fought against his enemies? No. He was persecuted. He was uh, beaten. Even he was put on the cross. Although Allah saved him from there. But he tolerated all these things. So the Prophet has said that I have come on the footsteps of Jesus Christ. This is why he says now jihad of sword is not permissible. And he quoted the hadith of the Holy Prophet It is in the Bukhari that now jihad is not permissible in, during the time of the Prophet Muhammad Our work is to spread the message of true Islam, of love, peace and harmony. What we are gaining through this message is more than what we can achieve by fighting with each other. What shall we gain by fighting? You see, those Pakistanis who have come to join Ahmadiyyad, they are from among those people. They have the same mentality, same psyche. Some of them are from some martial tribes. But despite that, when they accept Ahmadiyyad, they say now, the teaching of Islam Ahmadiyyad is that you should show patience and bear all these atrocities being committed against Ahmadis by opponents. So this is why, as Muslim has said, since the Holy Prophet also prophesied that during the time of the Prophet Messiah, he will face and his Jamaat will face all the atrocities, but you should tolerate them. So, this is why we are not retaliating, otherwise we can retaliate. But what will happen? We shall shatter the peace of the country, which is already in danger. Once uh, a person said to the third Khalifa, that permit me that we can organize some group and uh, use some petrol bombs and some other bombs and create disturbance in the country. He said that, yes, you can do it. But then Allah Ta'ala will say, okay, now you and your opponents do whatever you like and I am leaving you. If Allah Ta'ala leaves us, then we don't have any safe place. So it is better to follow the commandment of Allah Ta'ala that during the time of the Prophet Muhammad we should spread our message through love, peace and harmony and show patience. This is why we do not fight, right? <laughs> okay. So... Uh, that was uh, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mr. Masrur Ahmad, talking about uh, uh, talking about handling persecution through love, um, peace, and harmony. Uh, and with those wise words, we will end this uh, segment about 
the injustices actually that we see around the world in terms of um, uh, of uh, persecution, religious persecution, people not allowed to uh, to uh, practice their faith or being persecuted for their faith. And with that, we will move straight on to our next topic, which is also about injustices, but injustices uh, in a different context. So injustices in the context of global conflicts. Um, and who's responsible for that? And what's the solution for that? So the Russian army attacked Ukraine just over four months ago. Towns have been reduced to trouble, cities raised, thousands of civilians have been killed, and millions have fled the country. The impact of war always has devastating consequences. However, the Russian foreign minister maintained that not all seemed as it was and that the attack was a retaliation after the claims that the West dragged Ukraine to, Ukraine to commit a criminal act by joining NATO. This begs the question then, who is responsible for the conflict uh, and this conflict in particular? And what is the best way to find a solution to global conflicts? So uh, the BBC reported recently that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, uh, when asked about Russia's invasion in Ukraine, said in an interview, we didn't invade UK Ukraine. We declared a special military operation because we had absolutely no other way of explaining to the West that dragging Ukraine into NATO was a criminal act. He maintained that Russia's move to invade Ukraine was right, and when questioned on the innocent lives being put at risk, he said, International diplomats, including the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the UN Secretary General and other UN representatives are being put under pressure by the West, and very often they are being used to amplify fake news spread by the West. So that was the response to that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov gave around uh, when asked about the invasion of Ukraine. Um, why are injustices happening? What role um, do the world leaders um, play in this? What is What are the key, um, uh, key things that one can do to create sustainable peace? Um, let's talk now to our guest um, who's uh, who's just joined us, uh, Simon Hill, um, who is campaign's manager for Peace Pledge Union. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Oh, good morning. Thank you very much. Peace be, peace be with you and your listeners too. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, that's uh, very kind of you. So Simon, tell us a little more about Peace Pledge Union to start off with. Yeah, so the Peace Pledge Union essentially is a collection of people who've pledged to uh, reject war and to tackle the causes of war. Mm. So we grew out of the uh, the First World War, really. I wasn't around then at my, uh, myself, obviously, but um, uh, you know, in World War One in Britain, as in many other countries, there were thousands of people who opposed the war and uh, and refused to fight, who were conscientious objectors. And after World War One, there were many others who had got along with the war, but who realised that they had been uh, mistaken, that the war had had not achieved what it what it claimed it would, and um, and that it had been a, 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 had wasted millions of human lives. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, people came together to sort of pledge 
to refuse to go along with war, to say, you know, I won't fight and I won't be, I won't be part of the system. I won't be, it's not just that I won't fight, I won't, I, 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 I won't accept that. I'm going to peacefully resist war and peacefully, you know, tackle the things, do what I can to tackle the causes of war, poverty, inequality, um, sort of human rivalries and nationalisms and sectarianisms that, that, that fuel war. So the Peace Pledge Union's been going since the, since the 30s and we're the, we're the British section of War Resisters International. So we work with, with other peace campaigners around the world, including in Russia and Ukraine, which has been a, you know, a great honour to be in touch with those people lately. Um, but essentially, uh, you know, we're people from all faiths and none, all backgrounds, all saying, well, war can only happen if people go along with it. And I, for one, will not go along with it. Sounds like your dog is also a pacifist. Uh, he doesn't like being talk- talking about uh, conflicts uh, there. So, <laughs> talking yes. talking about Ukraine and uh, and and Russian conflict, uh, what to your mind should have happened from the beginning? Well, I think I think that's a great question because when you say from the beginning, because um, we're also focused on you know what we should do now, and that's mm. really important, but. Sometimes we need to step back and say, you know, how did we get here? Right. Um, you know, and if, if we look back to the end of the Cold War in the early 90s, you know, there was a great opportunity to build um, to build different sorts of systems, different sorts of ways of resolving conflict. You know, we had the, those regimes in Eastern Europe brought down by, by their own people through largely nonviolent uh, revolutions. Um, you know, the end of the Cold War. But then what you had, instead of cooperation, you had uh, NATO looking for a new purpose, NATO building up uh, more weapons, you know, uh, expanding eastward. And then on the other hand, you had uh, rulers like Putin coming to power in Russia, you know, building up their own militaries, uh, fermenting hostility to the West. And all that opportunity to build peace at the end of the Cold War was lost because there were people on both sides powerful people on both sides who had an interest in you know stirring up hatred stirring up uh you know military aggression and you know yeah arms dealers making money from war so um you know what we really need is to look at the starting points and actually say you know people in britain in russia people in the u.s people in india pakistan you know wherever have got more in common with each mm. other than they have with those who who try and use them to pro- to promote war and to um, and uh, and to profit from war? So I think this is what we're seeing now. Is we're seeing the people of Ukraine suffering uh, uh, the results, uh, you, you know, suffering as a result of that failure to build to build peace at the end of the Cold War. Simon, so, a lot of people would argue that um, that NATO uh, had every right to expand. And, uh, you know, if somebody wants to, if a nation wants to join NATO, why should NATO stop stop other people, other nations from, from joining NATO if they want to join NATO? What would you say to that? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, you know, first we could ask what, what NATO is. I mean, hmm. you know, during the Cold War, you had the Warsaw Pact, which, um, you know, as you know, brought together the, um, the Soviet-aligned countries. Mm-hmm. And then you had NATO, which brought together the, countries aligned with the US and at the end of the Cold War the Warsaw Pact dissolved and NATO didn't you know it would have been logical for the the both to uh, both to dissolve um, you know the question of why does NATO 
uh, need to exist at all if it's the bigger world perhaps mm. why do you think uh, it existed why why do you think um it perpetuated and um it was allowed to exist even when there was actually no perceived enemy yeah i i, I think that's a good one i think there's always sadly there's people who who, who benefit from military tension the arms mm. industry uh, is very powerful and um of course politicians and right or left west or east you know can benefit from stirring up hatred against a perceived enemy you know saying um uh, you know stirring up hatred against the russians or the russians stirring up hatred against the west you know a politician a president a prime minister who who encourages people to focus on an outward enemy is is distracting attention from their own um their own record their own failings and sadly that um over time um can uh, c- can have a very negative effect and even when it comes to the power of the arms industry i mean it's in the conspiracy theory i'm not hmm. not going to that but just just in terms of how much influence they have it's worth noting that it's robin worth cook, billions of dollars so obviously so there's, right, there's money yeah, there yeah. yeah i mean robin cook the former british foreign secretary said that the chairman of bae systems the arms company had the key to the garden door at number 10 downing street um and, and metaphorically in you know in as much as the influence they had over over tony blair at that um at that time hmm. okay so so essentially you're saying you know your point is that uh that because there was no cold war anymore russia soviet union was dismantled russia was uh, was in a bad state economically at that time you know we're talking about early 90s there was no point for for nato to have uh uh to to have existed and and nato should uh, should have been dissolved uh, as well um yes, right so yes. so absolutely exactly so that didn't happen of course and uh, nato continued to exist a- and then I- instead of just existing we saw that nato then began to uh to expand and we saw you know countries like poland um and sure. other eastern european countries then joining w- why is it Uh, is the issue of Ukraine joining uh, NATO so sensitive for Russia? Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting one and I think again we've seen perhaps Putin's made a uh, a symbolic point out of it and you know I've no wish whatsoever to defend Putin. I I don't support NATO sure. or, or or Putin and of course. um you know it's worth noting that NATO sorry that putin um was suffering declining popularity in russia hmm. and economic problems in russia and then he turns attention outwards by focusing on ukraine so he's got his own cynical motives there as well right. i i dare say uh you know russia might some russians might feel that they're being surrounded by nato countries or there's a lot of nato countries um now on their borders and that doesn't for a moment justify putin's aggression in mm. ukraine mm. but you know i think he's able to to build on that fear and certainly um you know we're in t- the peace pledge union we're in touch with peace activists in russia and bear in mind there is a thousands of people over 15000 people in russia have been arrested for protesting against the war in ukraine and we need to we need to remember those people and you know they tell us that when nato sends more weapons to ukraine when nato um 
does something that is perceived as aggressive, mm. Putin could use that to stir up support for and war. And he does. And it's yeah. harder for the, yeah, and it's harder for them as Russian peace campaigners to persuade people to oppose the war um, uh, when um, you know when NATO acts like that and Putin can can use that for his argument. If he were to come to the present time now and uh, sure. and talk about the immediate prelude to the to the war, um, one of the um, in in well actually a few times Russian uh, leadership made clear that it's the it's the issue of Ukraine joining NATO which which is which was really irking Russia and their leadership, and they said that. Uh, the issue of Ukraine joining NATO should be taken off the table, and the the best response that they got from the West was, "Well, we never we, we're not going to take it off the table, but we're going to tell you that it's years away. It's probably even a couple of decades away." But but Russian sort of um, a stiff response to that was that you've just got to take it off the table for the cause of peace. In our time, do you think that? It, it should have been perhaps uh, a wise move on the part of Western leaders to have accepted that demand? Well, I think, um, you know, Putin can be as, as cynical and manipulative as, uh, uh, well, as, as we know, and I'd be, I wouldn't be, you know, a bit, a bit hesitant about accepting Putin's assurances, you know, if he said, take that off the table and the, and the war will end, I wouldn't be, you know, I'd be very cautious about that. However, I do I do believe that you know the war could only end through through negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Putin and some, not all, but some NATO leaders have got uh, uh, you know you know a, a difficult to trust, to put it mildly. But you know we did see at the end mm-hmm. of March, Zelensky was um, sort of hinting at the idea that that Ukraine might pledge not to join NATO and a couple of other similar promises in return for Russian troops um, pulling out. And it did look closer to a deal at that point than at any point before or since. And it actually, although Zelensky was perhaps willing to rule out NATO membership, he had Joe Biden and Boris Johnson, in, in a sense, um, you know, not not really backing him up there, not not wanting to go along with that. And I, mm. I, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, that's that's certainly one of the things that that would help. I'm not saying I'm not saying mm. Ukraine should just roll over and agree to Russia's demands, mm. but I, you know, if it's, Ukraine it's probably not about were militarily that. neutral, that would that would be um, that you know that uh, that would be a good starting point. Exactly. So you know, the point that I'm trying to make is that you know, from from a Western point of view, the Western leaders then could go back to posterity. And 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 say that listen, we we got we gave peace every single chance. We did everything that was in our power to sure. uh, to achieve peace. We even you know accepted Russia's demands, and and then you know the ball would have squarely been in in Russia's court. And and to your earlier point, would have probably exposed Putin and Russia even more. Yes, you know, I, I, I think you're right. Um, I think though. You know, within NATO, there are people trying to end the war, and there are people who um, perhaps have an interest in in escalating it. And mm. Putin, and perhaps some in the West, you know, would would rather would both rather have excuses to continue the war. Mm. And actually, you know, we really need to be strengthening those who 
who who supporting those who who want a negotiated peace, not a surrender, but a negotiated peace. And we owe that to because you know the people who will suffer, the longer the war continues, people will suffer are not are not uh, rulers in Moscow or Washington or London or or, or the generals. Uh, you know the people who will suffer will be innocent people, children in Ukraine. Um, you know, ordinary people in Ukraine who just want to get on with their lives. And, of course, the um, teenage conscripts of the Russian army as well. And, um, you know, we owe it to, to Ukrainian children as much as anyone else to, mm. to, to push for real negotiations. Well, perhaps the CEO of BA Systems um, still has the key to the garden door of well, number 10. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> right. You know, okay. We've seen that with the with the just you know British, even with the Conservative leadership election at the moment, you've got so many candidates saying they're going to increase military spending, using the war in Ukraine as a justification for that. When the UK actually has the fourth highest military spending in the world already, and yeah. um, you know the only thing that's really going to protect is the profits of arms dealers. You know we need to to invest in other ways of. Uh, tackling the, the root causes of war. So I've just googled BA Systems, and uh, you know their um, uh, their website actually states that it is the largest defense contractor in Europe, and it's ranked the yes. seventh largest in the world, based on 2021 revenues. And 2021 revenue was uh, a mere 19.5 billion pounds. Uh, and it has uh, 89,600 employees around the world. Well, yeah, that's um, uh, that is a large amount of uh, of revenue, I, and uh, uh, with money, obviously, com- yeah. comes influence, as we as we all know. Right. Okay. So, so Simon, then, where do we go from here? Do Do you think? Uh, Peace still has a chance here, uh, talking particularly about this uh, the situation, or do you think we are too far into it now? Well, I think we're so far into it that, mm. you know, if you ask me what I'd do, I'd say I wouldn't start from here, really. Mm. But we, we are here. And, um, you know, firstly, I want to make clear I'm not, I'm not criticising anyone in Ukraine for their choices. If somebody in Ukraine in a desperate situation that I've never faced feels the, they have to pick up a gun to fight, then I'm not going to judge them for that. I've never been in their situation. It would be very arrogant of me to, to, to condemn them for doing that. Um, however, what I think we have seen in Ukraine is we've seen a lot of uh, what's effectively been non-violent resistance. People seeing in front of tanks, uh, people in cities occupied by the Russians refusing to fight. And we've seen um, over 150 Russian soldiers have gone on trial in Moscow for refusing to fight, and I think that's really uh, inspiring. So I do want to see peace negotiations. I wish that the leaders of Russia and the West would commit to them, but if they're going to commit to them, it's only because the pressure comes from below. And, you know, people in Russia pushing campaigning for peace people in britain and in the us and in ukraine and everywhere only through ordinary people sort of pushing for a negotiated peace it, is it going to happen i'm not that mm. optimistic about it i'll be honest mm. but i you know actually you know let's let's not assume that, that, that putin and boris johnson and the rest of them well you know will will make you know none of them will do the right thing and, and unless we people on the ground uh, Russians refusing to fight, Ukrainians sitting in front of tags, people in Britain lobbying the government, you know, unless um, unless we 
you know, we push them from below. Right. Um, let me ask you about another situation, which is um, uh, another geopolitical situation, which is brewing, sure. which is uh, around China. So yes. uh, China hasn't invaded any country yet. No. Um, and yet we see China being uh, branded as the enemy, inverted commas, um, in the West. And often we see as well, even in the press, we see Russia and China being bracketed together for for whatever reason. Yes. Do you think that's a that that's a sound policy uh, adopted by the by the Western leaders, creating more enemies? And do you think that's that's going to create a safer world for our future generations? Uh, well, well, no. Briefly, I think um, you know China and Russia have very different political systems. Uh, mm. You know, there's, there's maybe some overlap with certain things, but to just sort of label them as the same is. It, it, it nonsense, really, mm-hmm. um, as well as being culturally and economically uh, very different. Um, I'm no, I'm no supporter of the Chinese government by any means. Sure. Um, however, just trying to label China as the enemy um, is, and you know, again, it, it feeds into this. Uh, you know, Western leaders, particularly military leaders, having. Um, stirring up hatred and when you if you look at when enemies are mentioned when the notion that China is a threat or even sometimes the notion that Russia is a threat are mentioned it's often mentioned amidst calls for higher military spending you know we need more military spending because China is a threat because we might be invaded by Russia but whatever and actually you know whatever view you take on war or military spending when you know, when generals or retired generals call for more military spending, then, then you know everyone wants more money for the organisation they're in charge of. Um, that that isn't a, a sound basis to to analyse anything. Um, and yeah, China might um, sometimes uh, promote negative stereotypes of the West. They might act mm. aggressively, certainly internally in their own human rights record. They're they're very aggressive. But the the general labelling of China and Russia as if they were the same, and you know, using the existence of both of them to um, to to call for higher military spending or to stir up military tension is really not helping anything. Uh, is really not creating a a, a peaceful world. Labelling any group uh, as if they were all the same, you know, all our enemies are the same, is you know, usually a sign of inaccuracy because. Mm-hmm. Everyone is up the same, and um, I, I, I think um, you know what we have to recognise ultimately is that people in Russia, people in China, people in the West have far more in common with each other than they do with the those powerful people who you know who want to make a profit from them, preparing to fight each other. Robin Cook, uh, uh, sorry, uh, beg your pardon. I was I was reading about Robin Cook um, yeah. uh, and and what uh, uh, you know you said about him um, sure. uh, in terms of um, uh, uh, of BAE chief executive having keys to to number number ten at that time, and I was reading his. Um, his resignation speech as well, which is about the in, uh, the in opposition to the invasion of Iraq. So, any listeners uh, who haven't had a chance to to listen to that or read that, I would strongly urge them to do that. Uh, Simon Hill, thank you so very much for joining us this morning. Thank you this very much. Very insightful. Uh, really a pleasure.
Thanks for the discussion. Have a good day. And you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. So that was uh, Simon Hill, who is the campaigns manager for Peace Pledge Union, uh, talking to us about um, the need for peace as well as about um, uh, the role that uh, both Western and Eastern leaders have played uh, in escalating the conflict uh, around Ukraine uh, and and really creating a war situation that uh, we actually find ourselves in today. Right. Um, so let's quickly turn to uh, to the Islamic perspective around uh, around conflict. So the Holy Quran has outlined three levels of engagement with other people and other communities. The first and the minimum level is that of justice, whereby the Holy Quran advocates that the need to treat ev- everyone fairly and equitably. The standards of justice required by Islam are outlined in chapter four, chapter four, verse one thirty six of the Holy Quran which states, O ye who believe, be strict in observing justice and be witnesses for Allah, even though it be against yourselves or against your parents and kindred. Whether he be rich or poor, Allah is more regardful for them both than you are. Therefore, follow not low desires so that you may be able to act equitably. And if you conceal the truth or evade it, then remember that Allah is well aware of what you do. Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, said the current world situation has become extremely precarious and there is a real danger the crisis between Russia and Ukraine can escalate and spread much further afield. Certainly the situation is not just limited to one country. Rather, many countries will be engulfed if the conflict continues to, de- to escalate. Its impact will be catastrophic and its horrendous consequences will continue to reverberate and impact upon generations to come. Thus, I pray that may Allah enable mankind to recognize God Almighty and may they stop toying with the lives of innocent people simply to fulfill their own worldly interests. And that brings us to the end of our program today. Thank you very much for joining us. You were listening to Daniel Zia live from the South London Studios of Voice of Islam. I must thank our producers, Tehmina Chima and Seema Brahman, researchers Saira Ahmed, Aisha Budan, Shanze Mubarak, and Amber Kamal, uh, Amber Kamal rather, and uh, an excellent uh, tech support f- by Mr. Thayer Ahmed from the Tech Room. Thank you very much, uh, listeners, uh, for joining us this morning. There will be another live show tomorrow, so please do join us uh, for that show. I will be back next week uh, with another edition of The Breakfast Show. Until then, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Have a great day.
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day, 